0: Hello and welcome to Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Ryan Doucette, and as we do every week, we're joined by a brand new guest talking about their life and their journey throughout the world of martial arts. My guest today was born and raised in the Philadelphia area, married with no kids. He studied martial arts most of his life and started teaching right after high school. He's also interested in he plays guitar, enjoys live music, and also, like me, comic books, fantasy, and sci-fi. He's co-host of the Motion Martial Arts Podcast. Please welcome my guest today, Daniel Marino. How are you doing today, sir?
1: I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on, Brian.
0: Hey, it's it's my pleasure. i I'm, my goal is to have you know, the hosts of every martial arts podcast on my show at some time. You know, it's like we oh, got okay. we, we, we got to help each other. That's that's the only way the audiences grow and is you know, it's not like you know I, I I've worked in, you know, radio most of my life and and worked some in TV and it's like, it's not like the old days were you know, if there's a show on CBS and a show on ABC, you got to pick one. No, it's a sure. podcast. You can listen. There's no reason you can't listen to every yeah. podcast that you want.
1: Yeah, that's great. Well, you know, maybe sometime you got to come on motion martial arts podcast. Then it's too bad Dave isn't here because you know he's my he's my partner with that one. Yeah, nice. But, I, I plan on
0: having him on someday too. I just you know didn't want to do him like back to back. You know, usually sure. when I've had co-hosts, I've tried to spread it out a little bit. So, but yeah, he's definitely on my list too. So let him know that I'll be I'll be coming for him next. Cool. Well, you, I know you said you've listened to the show a little bit, so you kind of know how we, how we start things. I want to go back to the beginning. I, I know you told me you started at age nine, but I want to know what led to that. What, was there a certain spark that gave you interest? Was it your mom and dad saying, you know, hey, you're a troublemaker, we're putting you in martial arts? Kind of what led to it and what launched your martial arts journey?
1: Oh, uh, It was definitely personal interest. You know, if I were to say if there was like no, the very first thing was the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Cartoon,
0: way. comic book or movie?
1: Um, initially the car actually, initially it was the toys. Okay. Like, you know, like that, that was probably first. So first the toys that you got for Christmas for my aunt, I was probably like four years old, something like that. Then the cartoon. And when I was a teenager later, I got really into the comic books. And actually to this day, I still read, I, I read the current comic books and they're great. So, you know, that's, Definitely where I'd say like the earliest time the, the specific interest in martial arts started for me was with the Ninja Turtles. But just, you know, other stuff over the years, too. You know, mm-hmm. When I first started, when I started training around that time, I I recently got into Dragon Ball Z. Oh, nice. And I was obsessed with it. You know, like I, got, I was eight, nine years old. So that also was a big contributing factor that made me actually start training at a school. But, you know, I just immediately loved it.
0: So did it take convincing for your parents or did you just say, I want to try this and they let you?
1: No. Yeah. My parents were very supportive. You know, it seemed like, um, and you know, they, they, they knew that I was, I, I have a bunch of brothers and I think I was more into like Batman and the turtles and stuff like that than they were. So they, I think that they really identified even when I was young, that it was something that I was just had a natural interest and inclination towards.
0: Had you tried any other sports before that?
1: Nope no I had you know really martial arts the only thing I th- I did shortly afterwards you know, like try baseball okay try football but team sports never did it for me. really karate is the only sport that I've ever participated in
0: And you that think back to that very first school what first of all what style was it and what do you remember about your first class?
1: so you know essentially i don't really i don't think i do remember my first class I, mean, I remember the like the first couple of months okay early on You know, i was pretty young and um you know i it, i've had the same teacher my whole life very wow. much master david cremen runs a school he's ran a school for more than 25 years now in Bryn Mawr, pennsylvania so that's where i started with him and um you know, things that I remember about it early on was just you know like the concept of like of, of learning how to kick and punch and fight, and also working within the the curriculum and the community that he had there it was just something that I immediately took to even when I was young. I, I just knew that I wanted to be good at it.
0: So you you obviously stuck with the same instructor then for a long time. What was it about him specifically? What kind of stands out about him? And because I know you trained in some other styles too, so you know compared to other instructors, what stands out about him?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, you know, he was just a really good mentor and role model for me when I was growing up. You know, he was, he, he did a very good job in the classes that I participated in of kind of um, instilling in us the, the values that I think are inherent in martial arts practice. And not only martial arts practice, really any athletic pursuit, but the, con- you know, the the discipline and the focus and the work ethic that you by necessity have to develop in order to succeed at, you know, like a physically demanding activity, you know, was something that he, I think that he did a good job, even with young kids, of really making us understand that that was like the point. <laughs> that, was, that was what it was all about.
0: Okay. And that was Tung correct?
1: Yep. Nice.
0: That was actually my first style too when I was 10. So. <laughs>
1: Oh, OK, cool. And
0: A little little before you. Mine was in 1984. <laughs> so it's probably. Sure. And actually, the, the the place I trained at has since switched to Subakdo.
1: Gotcha. OK. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All related arts. I know you're, you do Taekwondo, yep. right? Correct. Yep. So and, you know, one of the things that so my teacher's teacher, Master Frederick Scott, who, um, is the is the leader of our group, Amcor Karate Institutes, you know, he often would like to just he likes to use the term Korean karate they refer referred it because you know it, when you say when you use a term when you talk about taekwondo you know like that can mean a lot of different things mm-hmm. and depending upon what style of taekwondo you do it's it often is like it, it can be almost indistinguishable from Tungsudo.
0: and you can tell if someone calls it korean karate most likely they started training probably at least in the 60s <laughs> so yeah, that's yeah. kind of 60s 70s that's what it was i mean that's how they that's how they had to market it because no one knew what taekwondo was no one knew what tongue sudo was but they knew sure. what, they knew what karate was
1: yeah definitely
0: so at any time in the, those young ages when you first started out did you get involved in the competition side of things
1: yeah i got involved in the competition side so, uh you know almost immediately i think i did my first competition when i was still a white belt okay and um it was a big part of the group that i was part of i mean to this day it's still a big part of the group that i'm a part of and you know it was something i you know i'm sure we can talk more about the other martial arts experience that i have and, mm-hmm You know, a few years ago, I was a lot more critical of point fighting and um, a lot of the sport side of karate. And I've really come to appreciate it a, a lot in more recent years, just because, you know, I think sports are great. You know, they're a really good way to challenge yourself. They're a really good way to become a better martial artist. And, you know, it is also important to understand, you know, where they break from reality and the skills that are neglected in a, point like, in a sport like point fighting mm-hmm. or maybe even the bad habits that they can create for, you know, self-defense or full contact fighting. But at the same time, you know, I, I never participated in anything competitive or athletic other than sport karate. I really appreciate having that in my background because I think it did teach me a lot, a lot of really good lessons. A young age
0: did you do sparring did you do weapons did you do breaking did you do you know pattern would you what'd you all compete in
1: yeah i mean over the years i've kind of done all of those things in competition at least mm-hmm. once or twice but mo- it was mostly points firing and forms competition okay
0: and did you ever get into the the musical forms side of things, like the Nazca type stuff, or was it more traditional?
1: No, more traditional. You know, they, they never got into the the Nazca kind of more what people would strictly think of as sport karate. But um, yeah, it was all all within the Tung Sudo community.
0: And back then, is there any like one specific tournament that stands out that you just either you did really really great, or maybe something just didn't go your way? Something that kind of that you, you still remember to this day pretty clearly.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I have a lot of strong memories, but you know, when I um, <laughs> my very first tournament, I lost to a girl in my division that was significantly smaller than me. <laughs> <Ouch>.
0: Okay,
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: my my young self had to swallow my pride a little bit there. Yeah. I think that <laughs> in in retrospect was a probably a good experience. Mm-hmm. Um, my second tournament, I think it was an orange belt. I won first place in the forms division, which nice. also was a great experience you know something i was really proud of over the years you know i got this disqual- when i was a young black belt like 15 16 years old just you know recently tested for my my first on i got disqualified from a few tournaments <laughs> for hitting too hard and um you know all part of the game i yeah. one of the first tournament when i was 19 one of the first tournaments that i ever traveled to was in branson missouri and actually was it was hosted by a a taekwondo organization called ctf central taekwondo federation Mm -hmm. and um you know that but you know that very very similar to what we did i would call korean karate Mm -hmm. but that tournament was a hard experience for me you know i didn't win anything and i got my nose broken in my first fight (laughs) of that tournament so it was You know it was a hard one and i think that i don't know in retrospect is it it was good to have those experiences i my my favorite one would be that it was actually the last tournament that i really competed in up until recently Mm -hmm. was in 2014 when i tested for my fourth dawn the same weekend we hosted a big tournament in downtown philadelphia fourth of july weekend and um You know, that was kind of like the highlight of it was what I I injured my shoulder at that tournament and that pulled me out of the point fighting game. But I fought well, you know, I had a really good round with a particular competitor that I'd gotten a lot of second places to over the years. So um, he was actually in a team fighting division, but um, I tied with I tied with him. I think we both scored three points in the round. We fought each other. And that was kind of the best I'd ever done against him. But I fought a heavyweight competitor in the grand champion division and um, tore my labrum, my left shoulder. And, you know, that kind of took me out of the competition side of things and, um, you know, led me to other places.
0: I definitely want to get to that, but one thing I got to ask you: what What was your weapon of choice when you? If you I, I wasn't sure how often you competed with weapons, but what was your one that you chose to do usually?
1: Um, no, I, yeah, I just I did weapons competition a bit as a red belt, which was for you know our style right before black belt, mm-hmm. and, and as a first on, but it was just staff. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that was and that, in my organization, some of the you know really senior members i think do some other weapons Mm -hmm. like traditional okinawa like sai but um for the most part when you know we only do staff forms
0: Okay. I know my, my old, uh, my original taekwondo instructor, Sue Walk-tool instructor, now they do, um, I don't know if they do it for competition, but he teaches a lot with canes. He's, he's so far the, the one of the few instructors I've met that actually teaches like self-defense with canes and, and stuff like that. So.
1: Yeah. I've seen that around a lot. You know, I don't know. If, and I, now I think about, it, I guess it might be a Tungsudo thing. Oh, it could, it could be. be.
0: It. Could be. Yeah. All right. So you said that, you know, injured the shoulder and that kind of led you in a different direction. So what came next in your martial arts journey?
1: So um, later that year, at the very end of 2014, I drove down to North Carolina and attended a seminar with Ian Abernethy. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Are familiar with Ian? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And he, um, he was somebody who I'd followed on YouTube for a while before that. So I was familiar with his work. And I should say, too, that I was always very fascinated with the forms and with applications of the traditional. Forms, you know, something with you know, sudo, most sudo as opposed to subakdo, and you know, a lot of Korean, a lot of uh, taekwondo, mm-hmm. is that we you still practice the the traditional karate forms. So we have Korean names for them. But the forms are are the same forms you practice in the Japanese and Okinawan styles of karate. So I, my teacher was always interested in application work, and I was also always very interested in. It. So we always used to, you know, play around with it. It was something you kind of did on the, that we would do on the side. Mm-hmm. But the, the main focus of of my training growing up, you know, was more you know conventional approach to karate and sport karate too. So it was sport competition and it was also. Just, you know, karate as an athletic pursuit, but we, you know, the the application side of things with the forms was only ever, you know, like uh, something we did on the side. So when I injured my shoulder and it kind of made me, it took me out of competition, I was looking for other things to do. i would always been interested in this stuff. So I decided to go down and train with Ian and it was a great experience. I mean, that first weekend that I attended with him, like really changed the way that I looked at karate entirely. Okay.
0: And was it shortly after that? Is that when you opened your own school? And also, and and before we get to opening your own school at what belt? And because you said you started teaching right after high school. So obviously that was something that you, it kind of drew you in pretty quickly.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we were even talking before about when I was really young when I first started. I mean, I knew I wanted to be a karate teacher by the time I was 10 years old. Nice. Yeah, it was just something I really was fascinated with and was called to. So it was always, you know, in my teen years, I did break training, like a six-month period, you know, and it's just pretty typical stuff. You know, the teenagers start forming friend groups Mm -hmm. around that age, and, you know, your friends kind of become... Almost like a second family to you. So I got pulled out of it for a little while, but then when I came back to it, I just knew that it was what I wanted to do. So I and it, it turned out to be a good decision too, because I considered going to college, I considered even joining the military, but um, you know, just to do something before I did that. But you know, I kind of felt that if I just get started with this now and dedicate myself to it, that you know, we probably it would work out. And it turned out, it turned out to be a good decision because, you know, I don't, I don't have any student debt that I'm dealing with and I'm also 32 now, but I've been teaching full time for, you know, more than 10 years already. So pretty experienced at what I do.
0: So what, what led you to want to, I mean, I know you said you wanted to teach since you were a kid, but you know, a lot of people that want to teach, they just teach out of someone else's school. What led you to actually wanting to open your own school?
1: Oh, uh, well, yeah, I just wanted to be able to make a living with it. You know, when I, when I say I started teaching, um, right out of high school, I started teaching for my instructor. So I would, right. he, I taught in, in his school for like a solid four years, you know, I was doing it full time there and, um, it was good because it gave me the experience of what it's like to run like a full school and, um. Then, you know, from there, I, you know, borrowed some money and I opened up my own commercial location. The first two years when I was, you know, running, my when I had my own school were rough because, you know, I was, wasn't even breaking even, you know, I was in the red every month. So I was working second jobs just to get by. I was living with my family, of course, too. So I could pretty much feel like as close to, you know, expense free as possible. Right. But around the third year is when things kind of turned around. I finally started to make a decent profit from it. And, you know, that's what I've been doing ever since.
0: And about how many uh, students do you have at your school?
1: Um, we're up to about 70 students now.
0: And is it a pretty even mix of adults and kids or more, one more than no, the other? No, it's
1: definitely mostly kids. You know, okay. At this point, I do have a good group of teenagers. just because you know, a lot of students started with me when they were younger. Okay. Stay with it. I do have actually a fair amount, number of teen, of students that start in their teen years as well, and then a small number of adults. You know, I have a small adult class.
0: So think back to that when you first started teaching for your instructor to now, and, and I'm I'm sure you've heard me ask this question of others, but what do you think has uh, changed most about your teaching style over the years?
1: Yeah, that's a really good one. I you know I would say that, and it's something I think about a lot is that. There are so many things that you just can't teach. There are so many skills that students just need to learn from experience. You know, it's like I can explain it to you and give you some guidance to like help guide you there. But the only thing that, that, you, that really, the really, the only way for them to really learn the skill or really understand the concept is to experience it. So I've, I feel that I've learned to be, to micromanage my students a bit less. You know like when i was younger i kind of thought of teaching as mostly like you know giving corrections and and giving orders and telling my students what to do and the longer that i've been running a school i think the more evident it becomes to me that's like that's a part of it but another big part of it is that it's my job as the teacher and as the school owner to just create an environment in which my students have the opportunity to have learning experiences it's not me just telling them what to do and, you know, relating them information directly. It's me creating an environment for them where they're able to have have experiences that will teach them, you know, practical skills.
0: Nice. Do you remember the first tournament you brought your students to from your own school?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, when I first started teaching, there was a year before I opened a, um, a commercial location. Okay. I was subletting from other places. So, sure. you know, I, there was a friend of my teacher's. Who was an athletic trainer, and you know he had a facility that he worked out of, and I, you know, made a deal with the owner with him and the owner of the facility. or paid like six hundred bucks a month, and I ran like three classes a week. Nice. And I opened my and I I started that you know like twenty minutes down the road from my teacher's school. So there were a handful of students who already, who I'd already, you know, I, I'd been teaching out of this school full time for four years. Mm-hmm. So they were all, you know, a lot of this, at that point, there were many students in that school were kind of as much my students as they were my instructors that worked with me, you know, more, honestly, than they'd worked with him. And yep. some of them even lived, you know, out in that direction. So I was able to start with a small number of students that I, I had taught at the Bryn Mawr School already, right? okay. about 10 students, maybe. Nice. So, you know, it's becomes a little bit hard to determine exactly when I was bringing my own students to tournaments and when there. you know, I, they, there was a period of time when I was just, I was the full-time instructor at the Bryn Mawr School, okay. you know.
0: And yeah. Did you ever host your own tournament? Have you done that yet?
1: No, nope, haven't done that. You know, there. So in our there's six Amcor schools in our group, and in and we're the, in the Philadelphia area. So there's there's a few of the schools that that host annual tournaments. But my instructor and I've never we've never done one ourselves.
0: Any interest?
1: Yeah, we've talked about it, in the But you know, it's um it's hard. Sometimes too, it's also just hard finding a time of the year that um, we don't want to, of course, be stepping on anybody's toe. You know, like there, we already have a lot of right. local events.
0: Now, I know you said you, when you when you stopped traveling for competition you switched that out and started going to more seminars. First one was yep. the Ian Abernathy seminar. What were some other ones that you did cuz I know you've done some other styles and and cross trained yep. and some other stuff so what was the, some of the other seminars you took part in?
1: Yeah, so um I flew out to Arizona and I attended a seminar with Mikio Yahara who um was uh, he was one of the the JKA shuttlecon guys from the 70s and 80s that was you know world champ really high level my teacher too you know he, he can he of course comes from a Sudo background teaches Sudo himself you know today up to today but he he also trained a good bit in shotokan and he spent some time in japan as well so that's kind of a part of my background it was really good to train with him because he was just a phenomenal athlete you know he was in his early 70s back when i i think i was 2015 when i flew out to arizona and trained with him and just still blisteringly fast, real, you know, impressive martial artist and athlete, even at that age. Okay, cool. And what, what are some other ones you checked out? Um, Rory Miller, I'm familiar with him, but um, yes. yeah, yeah I, I was. his book, Meditations on Violence, was mm-hmm. another one. Even before I trained with um, Ian, that was a book that I read that I feel like really blew my mind and changed the way that I looked at martial arts. And I did- trying to get Rory on the show, so fingers crossed. Okay, right. Yeah, no. And that was a great experience. Um that whole weekend and I really would get I need to get out there and train with him again. But he um, you know, just everything about his approach and and his and the kind of the skill set that he has and the, and a lot of the services that he provides where, you know, takes martial arts and shows you how, you know, they can be applied in realistic kind of settings, you know, like that stuff all was really influential for me and, and training with him was great. It was a really, really good seminar.
0: And I know you mentioned in, in the email that you, you cross train on BJJ and boxing. Now, did that come from attending a seminar or was that just something you purposely wanted to go start doing?
1: Yeah. You know, it. I definitely, and it was true of Ian as well, but yeah, definitely training with Rory and just for all those guys, like they kind of, um, they cross train. It's all about finding similarities between the arts and, you know, different things that, uh, that, you know, Ian, for instance, he he cross-trained in judo because he wanted to improve his throwing ability. And he also, his karate background was a little bit one of his teachers, I was like a, a kickboxer early, you know, early on with with that sport. A yeah. guy named Peter Constardine. So he, you know, the kind of karate that Ian does, I feel I've like always had, you know, influences like that from other arts. Whereas, you know, the tansito I did was more what people would call traditional. But yeah, he cross trained in judo. Roy Miller also at that seminar. He would talk about how you know, I remember him saying at one point during that weekend, it's like everybody should do just a bit of boxing just so that you know what it feels like to to have punches thrown at you and to mm-hmm. stay yep. in there and to defend yourself intelligently. So it, it kind of came a little bit later for me, cross-training, something I've done, you know, in the last five years I've started to to cross-train, but I, I kind of went to the seminars first and, you know, with self, not only self-defense but also the – because that's Ian's thing is the, the application of the traditional forms – That was kind of the first thing that I did that really stepped outside of um, the training that I'd done my whole life. And I think it was kind of implied when you're doing that stuff that like, hey, you know, cross training is a really good way to develop some of these skills to a higher level.
0: Do you ever bring some of that stuff from your cross training or your seminars into your own school or do you try to keep that strictly Tung Sudo?
1: Oh, yeah, I absolutely bring it into my school. You know, I would say that, um, you know, it's all it's all there, you know, it. It's one of those things that in the forms are such a big part of what we do. And for most karate, you know, it often it's like the foundation of the curriculum is based in these forms. It's, you know, it's the way that you test. It's a, a part of the competition as well, the forms competition. So, you know, when I was, tra- you know, this, the stuff that I did with Ian and the application based stuff a lot, it's absolutely something that's become a regular part of my students' training in terms of like boxing and Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, I mean, I try to stay in my lane, you know, I'm I'm not, I'm not going to teach things that I don't have very high level expertise in, you know, but I do, you know, some basics for, you know, because I tell my students, I teach them self defense. So things like, and I don't know how familiar you are with Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, but the, like the technical get up. Mm -hmm. standing up base sometimes a technique is called just simple stuff like that so you end up on the ground it's like like basic method of how you get back up to your feet you know that's stuff that i've done in brazilian jiu-jitsu that i have incorporated into my teaching because i teach self-defense you know very cool
0: think back to your first black belt test compared to like when you test your students now has it changed much or is it pretty pretty standard to the test you went through to what your students go through for their black belt
1: Oh, yeah, it's the same because, you know, my students test through the organization. So, um, yeah, yeah. So, they, you know, their testing requirements are not something I have direct control over and they test, you know, the same way that I did.
0: Yeah, I think I remember that when I was in Tung Sido where it was like a panel. It wasn't just with Taekwondo. It's like my instructor and a few other black belts from the school. But I know I I remember that from Tung Sido where we actually drove like 30 miles to test and it was a a panel of I want to say like eight or ten like master instructors or something that we tested in front yeah, of.
1: Yeah, that's the way that we do it too. You know, okay. and it's, it's, I think it creates a good experience, you know, it puts the students under some pressure that um, can look difficult to replicate, you yeah. know, just by myself. You
0: know, sometimes tradition's a good thing. You got to stick with it. I mean, it's it's good to modernize sure. things, but it's also good, you know, some things need tradition. So that's cool.
1: Yeah. And it's also, it's a community, you know, it's like at the end of the day, I want my students to have, and it, these are things I've gone through over the years. So I've been frustrated with it in the past. And, mm-hmm. you know, at the end of the day, I do take it seriously that I want my students to be developing practical skills that can really aid them in self-defense. And I think that there is some criticism, you know, that you can, and not just tongue over, I think it's just traditional martial arts in general, you know, there's often some deficiencies there. I think it's, built into traditionalism a lot of the time, this idea that like this doesn't change. This is the right way to do it. Right. And, you know, I don't believe that. I do believe that you you should change what you do when you're exposed to a better way, you know. But at the same time, you know, like a big part of my this is something as a school owner, I think, has really changed my thinking over the years with it a lot, is that it's it's become more and more evident to me over that the community aspect of martial arts is a huge part of it, you know, and an important part of it. It's something that my students really benefit from, you know, that kind of stuff is important to me and why in terms of the testing material that that they do now, you know, there might be some things that I teach them to prepare them for the test that I might not teach them if I was in complete control over my curriculum, okay. you know. But at the same time, you know, the benefit that, that we get from being a part of, uh, of a good group I think is well worth it to them. That's
0: good. So how, I'm curious how you met David and kind of what led to launching the podcast.
1: Um, so Dave is my jiu-jitsu teacher. Oh, and um, okay. I, I first met him because the story there is that um, his teacher subletted from my teacher. So he, they would run their jiu-jitsu classes like at night after our karate classes were done or sometimes before our karate classes started. So that was, you know, when he, because his teacher, Alberto was just getting started. That's how he started his school. And Dave started working for him. And we were kind of like each other's only coworkers, (laughs) (laughs) you know, because he was the assistant jujitsu teacher. And I was, at that time, I was more the full-time teacher. But anyway, you know, so that's how I first met Dave. And then he, you know, has stuck with it got his black belt just a few years ago. And alberto moved and opened a new school in south carolina so now dave is the full-time teacher at the local local school that they have and that's where i train now
0: and what led to the podcast
1: Um, uh, you know we would just hang out and we would talk a lot and we always felt like we had good conversations so eventually we were just like hey why don't we record this and you know put it up <laughs> there nice
0: and that was 2018 you guys started that if i remember that right yep okay yep First of all, how'd you come up with the name? And then, you know, how'd you decide on like the format of what? Because, you know, at the time, you know, 2018, there wasn't as many martial arts podcasts out there. There was, there was a handful. If I'm reading the description, yours is listed as discussing the benefits of martial arts for self defense, health, and wellness.
1: Yeah. I mean, honestly, it, it, the conversational format that we use where we kind of just choose a topic and then we just let you know the conversation go it's just the easiest way to do it honestly mm-hmm. it's also the way it's fun you know like we yep. enjoy it it's just very informal like exploration to different topics stuff like that and and we did also note at the time that you know we felt like there weren't it seemed like the the martial arts podcast market was not quite saturated you know it's like it seemed like and we 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 thought we had a pretty good take on it too with him being a jujitsu guy a grappler me about me being a karate guy
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know that we would kind of hit like a pretty broad range of people in the martial arts world because you know there's a lot of podcasts out there that are very mma specific for yeah, instance
0: definitely you
1: know now there's a lot more that are karate specific but you know we kind of you know the idea was that like here's a jujitsu guy and a karate guy sitting down talking about these topics
0: and do you guys have a set release schedule or is it fairly random? How often are you doing episodes?
1: Fairly random. <laughs> you know, we, um, you know, when we have time and now it, over the last couple of years, I think more and more we've been doing kind of episodes separately. I've been interviewing a lot more karate guys, but I still see Babe, you know, at least once a week at the jujitsu school. And, you know, we've been talking about sitting down and doing more episodes together again.
0: Okay. Well, that's good because we, we need more. That's for sure. So yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. Absolutely.
0: And then what? What led you to the the Facebook page? It's uh, is it the Nih- Nihanchi project? Nihanchi project?
1: Yep. Yeah. So the Nihanchi project was just you know kind of like um, it was just an idea that I had that for a few years now I have only practiced the only the only form that's a regular part of my own practice is the first Nihanchi form, and you know it's a very foundational form and and in, in many styles of karate. And it's one whose the the applications to the movements in that form are just always ones that I felt were really clear and really effective. So what the Nahachi project started as was just you know my exploration of this idea of like you know looking at a traditional karate form as a complete system of fighting in and of itself, and I just you know would share clips of my of my training and my teaching and you know write write posts, just sharing some of my thoughts about that stuff and it it kind of took off a bit i got to get a, a decent audience
0: that's cool i was kind of watching through some of the videos and stuff and it's a great idea i mean that's because yeah I, I was just having the conversation with one of my guests the other day how they you know so many people who don't understand that forms and, and patterns and and you know depending what system what you call them but actually have real world applications a lot of you know i've had be, you know sure. people with some of our actual forms that we do like in our traditional table no school that think yep. some of the movements have to do with like chi and magic energy and like
1: who, where did yeah, you yeah. hear that
0: i mean that's that's not what this is about so yeah I, I love that you're doing that it's a great idea
1: thanks i appreciate it you know yeah it's something i'm really passionate about something i think that you know i i cross train and i also follow a lot of content that's in the combat sport Kind of world, and it is so common for people to be very critical of kata or hyung or forms, whatever Mm -hmm. term you use for them. And I get those criticisms in a large part. You know, it's like it's this choreographed system of um, series of movements. Like that's what a form essentially is. Yep and obviously you know fighting is not choreographed (laughs) you know it's like you know it's not supposed to be (laughs) exactly you know so i think that you know and this is another thing for me about it. So there's nothing wrong and i think this is the way it's been practiced for a long time there's nothing wrong with looking at these forms just as a performance art you know especially if you're competing with them that's really what it is it's a performance art you know it also was maybe a system of physical education. I think, and historically, there's a very good basis for that as well. You know, when when karate was first introduced into the school systems, first in Okinawa and then in the universities in Japan. I mean, that was a very, very big part of of the way that it was practiced. Is that this was a, this was physical education. The purpose of it was to teach young, you know, mostly young men, discipline and to strengthen their bodies and at the time, Japan was an imperial was an imperial country. You know, so it was also to create better recruits for the Japanese military. So these are all a part of this form practice. But at the same time, you know, the movements, they're the oldest part of karate. You know, they predate any written texts that we have for it. and and the movements have some sort of combative meaning. And I feel that, and it's a lot of what I've done with that in the Hachi projects page is just to see, you know, where you can go with it and the conclusion i'm pretty i'm pretty confident in the conclusions that i've come to that you know it's a, it's a system of close range in fighting you know where you're hitting with elbows and you're grabbing and holding in different positions executing foot sweeps and stuff like that And it's really cool stuff you know mm-hmm that's awesome I love it I mean
0: I'm definitely gonna be checking out more of it and it. one thing I'll tell you is that you you know you don't have to be in that system to, to understand it so it's, oh, yeah, it's, I think anyone who appreciates martial arts will appreciate watching it. obviously if you're in a Korean style you might understand some of the stuff a little more but it, it is very real world application and it's I, I think anyone who's who's involved in martial arts will understand what you're doing there so that's cool
1: yeah I appreciate it you know it's one of those things too that's just and I really I think Ian and, and there's a lot of others as well of course but Ian's the one who I was exposed to a lot of this stuff through. You know, deserves a lot of props because he's been doing this stuff for, you know, 25 years at this point, you know, with it too. And he's a real pioneer. Definitely. in that space and that i just want karate to make sense you know what i mean yes. it's like i get and still and even people you know i have friends you know and acquaintances online would say like hey listen i like these applications you're doing and all i still just don't understand why you have to have the choreographed form <laughs> <laughs> you know why don't you just do the applications and not the form and you know my answer to that i've come to over the years is essentially it's like because i like it <laughs> you know what i mean because it's because it, it's an art you know like yep. i get with it and, you know, there's an historical aspect of this as well. You know, the oldest karate books that we have come from the, the 1920s. And, <laughs> you know, with some sparse texts here and there from before that, but, you know, like Gichin Funakoshi, the founder of Shotokan. Yep. You know, he, he there's no books written before then. Then the forms are so much older than that. And so mm. it was a way of, it was a way, and I think that's this, this is the theory about it that I subscribe to, is that it was a way of recording combative information. And it actually kind of makes sense like that, you know? It's like, it's not something, you know, Okinawa got firebombed horribly in World War II. Mm -hmm. Who knows what kind of texts might have existed that were lost. But there's something to be said when we have this physical art that, you know, using a physical medium, which are these choreographed sequences of movements called kata, or the Korean term being hyung, you know, it kind of makes sense that, that that would be the way that you record the methods of a style, you mm-hmm.
0: know? Oh, I mean, one of my guests just a few weeks ago made that comedy. He's like, you know, if the, if the ancient masters would have had access to YouTube, you guarantee they would yeah. have been putting videos out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. the best way to teach someone is, it, you know, like that versus writing it down or drawing pictures. It's Yes, that's good to have text and everything like that, but you can definitely see better when you see it in, in real time.
1: Definitely, yeah, and I think that sometimes from a modern perspective, it's a little bit hard to appreciate that you know, like just texts and you know these other these me- these methods of you know f- forget about of course the internet and recording videos and stuff right. like that but even texts and things like that like for most of human history, I don't think that there was really the norm that you would record things like that necessarily. So, so I think that having this physical medium to record the the methods of of a physical practice it's just yeah it makes a lot of sense do we need it today i mean yeah i i don't know that that we do but if you like martial arts which i certainly do you know it's cool it's fascinating and when you connect it to the larger practice um, it's also extremely useful, you know, and that was something Ian was so influential with me about because, you know, like I'd always been in- introduced to applications. But what Ian did, the thing about Ian's method that really stood out to me and I've really embraced in my own practice is that he would also spar because it, it cause the term that he uses for it is kata-based sparring. Mm-hmm. I usually like to just call it clinch fighting, but, you know, he had this method of not only interpreting the movements of the forms, but like, okay, now let's apply it in sparring with each other. And that, you know, is something that I um, really have embraced and I think is so much fun and so cool. It's one of the biggest differences, I'd say, between the way that I trained growing up and the way that I teach my students now is that when we would spar in my instructor's school when I was younger, we pretty much were doing point fighting. Mm -hmm. You know even when you weren't in competition like ultimately you kind of just start doing point fighting in your class because that's what it's the context that you're that you're working from you know right with my students um i would say the big difference for me now is i'm very more deliberate about sparring different ways to develop different skills when we're when we're getting ready for a tournament we do point fighting in the class just general sparring though is more continuous, and we incorporate a lot of the st- a lot of the standing grappling that I would say is 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 my the way that I interpret the mm-hmm. movements found in the forms, okay. and even some very rudimentary groundwork as well. Just because I feel like you can't neglect that range of combat, right. not you know for self defense. And
0: then uh, you, you have the Facebook page. What let also you have the YouTube channel, uh, Practical Tung Sido. Yep. What, what led to that?
1: Um, just to say, you know, I really just started, you know, when the, when the Nahachi Project Facebook page kind of took off, I started, um, uploading the videos also to YouTube and kind of the, the way that I, and the way I still do it now is the, the longer form videos I, I put on the YouTube and the shorter you know, clips I, I put on Instagram and on Facebook and, um, yeah you know that that's that's why i started going on youtube as a lot as well putting more of my longer videos and it's also connected now a little bit too i have a pretty sizable i have a facebook group called practical tongue sudo as well and that's i kind of connect that more directly to the youtube page
0: yeah and it looks like they both have a good amount of followers so it must be fairly popular when you do them so
1: yeah i think that the practical tongue sudo group took off quicker than any of the pages i ever started we are up to four thousand members in it now and I think that there's a real demand in the Tung community for more of the application-based stuff. I, I think it's, for a little while now, it's been a little bit more popular in, like, Okinawan karate, maybe to some extent Japanese karate. But I think that with Korean karate, there haven't been too many people getting into that stuff. Right. And I think we're starting to see more and more, which is great.
0: I love what you're doing, and I will definitely put links for, for all that stuff out there so, for people to Thank see. Thank you. So. appreciate it. So now you, I know you mentioned a little bit of like combatives fighting and stuff like that. So are you a fan of MMA? And is that something oh, that yeah. uh, you ever at all in your career considered?
1: Yeah. So I never, I wouldn't say that I, I wish that I had considered it more when I was a bit younger, but mm-hmm. I never really considered it just because I was, you know, I was, I was fully invested in karate. Okay. I, the, Leo to Machida is what got, he, he got me into, to MMA nice. and I have been an MMA fan for a, a while now. And I've had some good conversations on my podcast with Dave about this. We say, you know, it's like when people say MMA, you know, they're referring to the sport of MMA. And then, you know, that's not something that I practice. You know, if you if you want to prepare yourself for an MMA competition, my school definitely is not the place, you know, for you to go. Right. But I also think and often, you know, the MMA is kind of used in terms just to mean like cross training. You know, that's what mixed martial arts and I would say that I do practice mixed martial arts in a sense. I try to combine striking, grappling together, I cross-train in different martial arts to bring different influences into what I do. I think the foundation of what I do will always be, you know, the basis of this Korean karate, Tung Sudo. Do. Right. But I think that— And you're doing
0: it more—I you. just say you're just doing it more so for real-world application, practical self-defense versus a sport
1: absolutely yeah, you know i think just being you know i think the sport is, has value you know can can be useful in that too but obviously definitely. there's a lot of deficient there's a lot of deficiencies as well you know i think that you have to round it out with other parts of your training and i think that that's a part of like i think as a culture you know mma has had a profound influence on the martial arts community at large Agreed. you know and i think i think that's the biggest thing i think it is a positive thing is that it's kind of shown that there is no superior, inferior martial art, you know, really, you know, the best way, like the most effective things that we see in MMA are just well-rounded fighters. You know what I mean? Like you can have, you can be a grappler or you can be a striker, but yeah. whatever you do, you need to have the supplemental skills to round that out. You know, like I'm a big fan of Israel Adesanya, for instance, and you know, he's a phenomenal world-class striker, right? Mm-hmm. Probably, you know, his grappling is, you know, UFC champ I'm sure his grappling is not bad but it's also nothing you know special you know he's not going to be winning any IBJJF you know like like competitions with his grappling skills right but it's it's a prerequisite that you know you can be a striker and compete at the highest levels of MMA but you have to have those defensive grappling skills that at least give you some awareness of what it's like for somebody to grab you and try to, to get you on the ground you know and I think what's cool about that is that that's also true of self-defense. You know, like MMA and self-defense are different things, but there's a lot of similarity to be found there that I think the best approach to both is just having a combination of striking and grappling skills. It's a great way to put it.
0: I know I've had that, you know, year I remember years ago having that argument with someone there like the UFC taught us that. Uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu is the best art like no it didn't it well, for yeah. one thing the original UFC taught us that if you set up a tournament and you hand pick your your son's opponents <laughs> then you yeah. could pretty much guarantee he's going to win you know it did sure. show that yes ground game is important but it did not show that one art is better than the other
1: yeah and it just shows, you know i think that there might be something to be said that if you're a striker there's never you know, has never had some, like a grappler or somebody trying to grab you and pull you to the ground. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, you know, you're probably in for a rude awakening there. <laughs> exactly. But you know, at this point with MMA, we've seen the opposite, too. You know, if you're if you're just a grappler and you think that you can just grab a guy who's like a good kickboxer who also knows how to. Knows how to sprawl, knows how to frame, knows how to keep you off of him. It's like you're going to be in for a rough time as well. I think you just have to have some of both. And the funny thing, too, is that that's also kind of traditionally a more traditional version of karate as well. Mm-hmm. You know, karate always had takedowns. It always had holds, knees, elbows, these close range strikes that often like involve some kind of gripping. As well like all of that stuff is found in the forums even found in the other and the other parts of the training methodology like one steps and you know different drills but it just wasn't found in point fighting you know it's like point fighting is an interesting sport in that it's like it's a sport where where the rules often tend to like remove clinching and grappling entirely from the picture when and it's, it's kind of unique in that too. Like any, even even Olympic Taekwondo has like, which of course the rules in Olympic Taekwondo are hyper-specific and develop very specific schools. But there's a there's a clinching game to be found in that sport even as well, just because anytime you have a continuous striking competition, it's like clinching is going to naturally happen. It certainly is a part of boxing, you know, but point fighting is just that art where like the, the fight stops and then a call is made, you know? Yeah. It develops interesting abilities. Like I, I did a few months of Muay Thai before I injured my knee. And when I was far with those guys, I mean, you know, they would light me up when they're on the inside. But for a lot of them, I would surprise them with just being able to hit from the outside. You know what I mean? Because that's point fighting. Is like I could I could go in, I could hit them from far away, I would get that first shot. But then, you know, they don't know how to box and I don't. And I'm at a disadvantage. Right. But I think that's, you know, and that's the cool part about cross training and trying different things is like, not only does it expose you to your deficiencies, but it also shows you what your strengths are, you know? Agreed completely.
0: So in all your years of martial arts, is there one philosophy you've learned that stands out? It's a number one on your list. You keep coming back to it. You still teach it to your own students.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, concepts that I'm a fan of. I mean, really, if there's one, I had a good conversation with my friend Winston years ago about this. And he's a guy who's a couple years older than me, but I've known him, you know, since we were kids, we trained together. And we would just talk about how I feel like the concept of delayed gratification is super important, just for people just to like live a healthy, functional life is like having a good understanding of delayed gratification the importance of working hard for something now and not receiving the benefit for it immediately but receiving the benefit in the future and both winston and i when we were talking about it we were just you know, identified this like yeah i definitely like it was in our teachers karate classes like when we first really understood that <laughs> that concept that was a, my first real direct exposure to that concept that's like you're exhausted this this sucks right now you know this is really hard but I really want to be good at this so I'm gonna do it I'm gonna put in the work now I'm gonna put in the work now for the benefit later and I think that's probably the number one thing there's one thing that I want to relate to my students through the martial arts training it's probably that I want the training the time that they spend with me because it's often limited you know it's like it's normal that another part being a teacher is Again, you said, you know, you have a certain amount of time with a student before they decide to move on to other things, or even in the best of cases, you know, they have them until they're 18 and they go away to college. And maybe they come back during the summers, but get a job somewhere else, you know, that's kind of like the, what I view as, is for in many cases, like, you know, the, the end of the time that I'll often have directly teaching a student. And that's a big one that I want them to be exposed to in my classes.
0: Great answer. All right, I got some fun questions here to wrap things up. Who are three, four, five, and, and I've had people do as few as two, as many as eight, but three, four, five names you would put on your personal Mount Rushmore of martial arts?
1: Oh, that's a good one. All right, so um, for me personally, I would have to say one would be Motobuchoki, and I, you're, probably, you're probably familiar with him.
0: I know the name, yep.
1: Yeah, I know the name. So he was uh, he wrote a book called Watashi no Karate Jitsu. That I believe came out in 1932 and he's often just cited as an as like a prime example of karate's practical roots you know he some of the statements that he makes in that book are very interesting he actually gives a fair amount of detail in his analysis of the of the first nahachi form which is really cool because you don't really have anything like that from any of the other texts from the time and even in the some of the drills and the That he shows in that book, there's a lot of really useful techniques and concepts to be found there. So in terms of like karate proper, you know, I think that he's a he's a early author that was very influential for me, and I think really really good guy for people in the karate world to be familiar with and check out. Okay, I would also say Bruce Lee. Nice, absolutely is on there for me. I actually, when I was a little bit younger, I used to kind of hate on Bruce Lee a little bit. because really? I always used to be like, why does everybody think that this guy is the best martial artist that's ever lived? <laughs> you know, I can think of this, you know, karate guy who could beat Bruce Lee and all that stuff. But at, over time, the more that I've actually read Bruce Lee's books <laughs> and the more that I've understood his influence historically. Um, the more I've appreciated, you know, how incredibly important a figure he is in martial arts history. I mean, you know, the things that he was saying and things that I personally adopt myself, the whole, you know, you know, take what is useful, discard what is not, no. you know, what you ha- and what you have left is uniquely your own. That whole Jeet Kune Do kind of methodology that he has behind it, I think was, was just way, way ahead of his time. You know, even to this day, for a lot of it, it's still yeah. ahead of a lot of the martial arts world. So I think Bruce Lee really was a genius, you know, a phenomenal athlete, and I think he really a genius martial artist. Nice. Um, I also would say that Jigoro Kano, you know, and for him, he, he, he he's kind of I guess just the best person to choose. the founder of modern judo. I mean, really, the modern conception that we have of martial arts as a method of strengthening the body and the mind and if it being more about self-development rather than combat strictly speaking i mean that really comes from kano more than anyone else it was adopted by a lot of people that were you know contemporaries of his but he was really extremely influential there mm-hmm. and i mean if i were to give a last one my fourth personal mount rushmore that's hard <laughs> hard to choose i don't know i don't know I- your
0: tongue's style sort of what chuck norris
1: yeah chuck Norris. <laughs> chuck norris would be great and he's another one it's a great guy he cross-trained and uh you know incorporate a lot of other influences into what he does so i i certainly am a big chuck norris fan yeah you could put him on there as well
0: hey, there we go that's a good that's a good mount rushmore so all right how about a favorite martial arts book
1: uh that would definitely be watashi no karate jitsu though okay. i already mentioned Rory Miller, and I also already mentioned Rory Miller's Meditations on Violence. That would also be another really good one. Those ones I cannot suggest more highly.
0: Very good. How about a favorite martial arts video game?
1: Oh, you know, I mean, I think it's got to go with Street Fighter, too. It's like... You're
0: my second guest this week that has picked that one, so that's cool. (laughs)
1: Yeah. I mean, I just love Street Fighter in general. You know what I mean? But, like, that is one that I grew up playing on Super Nintendo and will always be... Do you
0: hear they're uh, remaking the movies? I, I heard. I just read that online yesterday that they're. Re- I did not remake- hear that. But I yeah. Trust. Yeah,
1: we're gonna get a modern Street Fighter movie.
0: Uh, hopefully, I mean we've had, we've had two, so uh, you know both were. You know, I don't know if you, I mean the Van Damme one. It was a Van Damme movie. I mean, it was it was okay, yeah. but <laughs> definitely compared to definitely compared to Mortal of- Kombat, it didn't really hold up yeah. as a video game movie. <laughs>
1: Yeah, some of the anime I've seen, was, I think, was was pretty good. Yeah. There's some decent Street Fighter anime. Nice. So
0: I'm, uh, it depends. If they get the right person to star in it, I think it could be a good movie. So we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> All right. How about a favorite martial arts TV show?
1: Favorite martial arts TV show. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to have to go with Avatar Last Airbender with that one. Really? Okay. Yeah. So something I love about that show is that they, you know, hired martial artists to do the choreography for the animation. Mm-hmm. So, if you're familiar with the with the story at all? You know, each of the bending styles is based on a different style of of Chinese martial arts, and I really appreciate it. It's like really good show.
0: Very cool. All right, how about a favorite martial arts movie?
1: Favorite martial arts movie? You know, this is actually probably an interesting answer. So, shortly, I think it might have been right after I started training, or right before. I was nine years old, and I saw Rush Hour Two <laughs> nice. in in theaters. Okay. And I absolutely love, especially Rush Hour two. I think just because mm-hmm. at the time, you know, like just sparked this lifelong interest in martial arts. I had, but I like all three Rush Hour movies, especially the first two. But all three, I think, there's a fourth one coming out too. Really, but I'm a okay. big, I'm a big fan of Rush Hour. Those movies are great. but some of my favorites. Jackie Chan is uh probably my, favorite, my my martial arts movie star of choice would be jack Chan.
0: Oh, can't go wrong with that that's a good one all right this yeah. one doesn't have to be a martial arts movie just a favorite movie fight scene
1: hmm. favorite movie fight scene man there's that's a difficult one <laughs> honestly i mean the the first ninja turtles movie at mm-hmm. the end with the shredder Scene, i think that will always have a special place in my heart i was obsessed with those movies growing up that definitely was a big influence on me as well so i'd go with that one okay
0: very cool and this one not really martial arts i'm just just because i'm a nerd i have to ask this question so you're a martial artist and you and you grew up in the philadelphia area I just picture you maybe doing this like after you got your black belt. Have you ever gone to the museum and run up the rocky steps and done the Oh, job? of course. Yeah, yeah, of
2: course. Uh, of
1: course. See if I ran a and school all, I'd have you know, all I'd have
0: all my students do that after they tested. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: They have the statue there. It used to be at the top of the steps. Yep, but they now moved it. The bottom, unfortunately, but yeah, no. I mean, Rocky can't go wrong. I love those. I recently saw the Rocky musical in Philadelphia too. It was there's a Rocky good. musical. There's a Rocky musical, Broadway musical, and you know, my wife's like really like. I'm not, I've never been a fan of musicals, but I was like, all right, we'll check that one out. But I'm, I was shocked how much i enjoyed it how it did i really not
0: know well. this i knew there was a roadhouse <laughs> musical i never knew there was a rocky musical
1: yeah those are as wow. is good
0: yeah and all my kids are involved in theater so i should actually know this now i gotta go online and find a bootleg or something like that but yeah yeah, that's actually funny I've, I've been to philadelphia once in my life i was there for work over a decade ago and actually was in concha yeah. for a week and okay. I, I had told them beforehand, they're like, anything you wanna do? I'm like, Yeah, I wanna to go to the I wanna run up the steps. And yeah, I yeah. and I didn't get to. They didn't bring me. <laughs> God. Uh, Every time I well, asked, well, like, oh we have this print. So
1: mad. That's right. That's right in my area. So if you're ever in Philadelphia, you're more than welcome to come on out. Nice. Well, I,
0: I'm hoping to get out, out east again. My I got a son that lives in Arlington, Virginia, and I haven't been out there to visit him yet since he moved there. So I want to get out east, and I want to get to New York, and I want to get to you know, Philly, and I want to get to D.C. area. So... Hopefully, in the next year or two, we'll be taking a trip and maybe spending a couple of weeks out there driving
1: around. So we'll see. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those steps aren't going anywhere. So nice. I'll be there for you. So,
0: before I let you go, anything else? Maybe I forgot to ask you that you want to be sure to get out there. Any last minute parting words?
1: No, no. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's been really fun talking to you, and um appreciate, you know, sometime, you know, if you hit up Dave, he comes on the podcast, and if you ever be interested in coming on our show, we we'll would be happy to have you.
0: Yeah, definitely. Hey, I, I appreciate Like I said, I'll – it's truly one of my goals when i started this I'm like i want to find every martial arts podcast host yeah. i want to have them on my show it's like we got like i said before we got to help that's each awesome. other and, and i know there's a lot yeah. that are out there that aren't going on anymore unfortunately but i'm reaching out to as many as i can one thing i know about podcast hosts they like to talk so <laughs> that's good yeah absolutely yeah. <laughs> cool well I, I truly appreciate your time and this, this has been a blast
1: yeah no thank you so much really appreciate it